Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And uh, we're just so happy to be having this event here. So, so very happy. I was telling Charlie, I think the only other cool, coolest, amazing sci-fi author I met here besides you was Ursula Le Guin. So that was like, yeah, that was like, wow, meeting Ursula Le Guin was like, you know, really, really cool. And you were like, you know, like a, a close second. You are just amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, so there's Ursula and Charlie. That. Okay. That. We're talking, we just love her. And I also want to say oh how exciting it is to have her here because one thing we did talk about, the writer that she and I did not meet and I wished we could have met was Octavia Butler, you know, who was also an important influence in your, in your work, yeah. I, I, I understand. And so to, to have Charlie here, you know, alive and well, um, though she... Though she <laughs> Though I understand that she was she was rushing to get here, she slipped and fell right, <laughs> like yeah. tore her hose. So it's like so I was like, oh my god, you know, it is cold rush. She said, should I change my hose? Like, no, no, it's really punk rock looking. Just keep it, you know, just keep it. So, um, so she's she's won the Nebula, she's won the Hugo, she's like a really big deal. She's got stuff in development at NBC. I mean, it's like. Charlie, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much, and thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Noel. I love this store so much. This is like one of my favorite bookstores in the universe. I'm so grateful to be here again. Thank you so much, Skylight Books. This is such a wonderful store. Is anybody sitting there? Okay, so if people are standing and don't want to be standing, there's a seat in the front, um, and you know... If somebody, especially if somebody, yeah, okay, great, great. That, that didn't take long. Hi, sorry. Um, cool. Back in grammar school, they taught us all about crocodiles and what to do if you ever meet one. Don't try to run because you're on their territory and they can ensnare you in one of their long tentacles before you take your first stride. Plus, they can clear vast distances with their powerful hind legs, each one the size of an adult human. And their strong forelegs can climb any surface and dig through almost any barrier. You might be able to hide because we don't know how they sense their prey. They can't rely on vision or hearing in this pitch dark wind that they live in. They may use scent or maybe they can detect motion somehow. Nobody's ever hidden from one, but you might be the first. The only real viable strategy, though, is to attack. Crocodiles do have a few weaknesses that a human can exploit. They have soft spots on the underbelly, where the carapace doesn't extend all the way around. I know where all of their major organs are, because I watched Frank the Butcher carve one up for some fancy banquet after a few hunters had gotten lucky, returning from the night in one piece and with fresh game. But their main weakness, the easiest one to reach, is the exact center of the pincer that's right in front of me, right now, sticking out of the creature's head. 
The impenetrable shell contains two knife-sharp claws, but at their midpoint is a forest of a hundred wriggling tongues, each one about the size of your little finger. If you manage to strike at the pincer's heart and hit those slimy appendages dead on, then you might kill it in one stroke. That pincer is so close, I can feel one of its edges scrape against my throat. It could slice my head off before I could even react. I try to summon all of my courage, brace my feet on the slippery ground to deliver one great blow to the warm spot at the pincer's fulcrum. I can do this. I'm strong enough. I raise both fists. Then I stop because I can feel warm breath coming from below the pincer where the creature's mouth is and that part of me that always stands back and pulls everything apart instead of just blurting out words is asking, why is a crocodile's mouth so far away from all those tongues anyway? She can't possibly be using them to taste anything or make any sounds. Why are they right at the center of this armored scissor, vulnerable, yet shielded? I lower my fists. Instead, I push my unprotected face forward, almost losing my balance in the dark. The pincer is all around my head and neck now, but it doesn't close and kill me. Instead, this crocodile lets me press forward and push my frost-burnt nose into the moist heat of her slimy warm grubs. They brush my face and my head floods with urgent smells and disorienting sounds. A beautiful ugliness, too much to handle, like I'm out of my head drunk with no up, no down, nothing but a whirl of sensory overload. I almost keel over, but somehow I stay upright until I'm somewhere else. I'm out in the middle of the night now, surrounded by huge sheets of ice on all sides. A mountain of ice and snow sidles past along the horizon. We're thousands of kilometers farther out than any human has gone in 25 generations since we lost all of our scout ships and our all-terrain vehicles. Somehow, I could see in the dark now, except I realize I'm not seeing at all. I'm using alien senses, and my mind is somehow turning them into sight and sound. I tear through the landscape so fast, the wind can't keep up. A sudden storm could rip me apart. The tundra could swallow me whole, but I don't even care. My back legs push against the ground and the ice surrenders, while my smaller front legs rip into the slick surface, propelling me even faster and keeping my balance. I'm not running. This is something much better. I've never felt this much power in my body. So many sensations flood into the ends of my two great tentacles as they taste the wind around me. I want to laugh. And then I turn and see that four other crocodiles are running alongside me, grasping some spiky devices in their tentacles and guiding a sled full of some precious metal. I feel a surge of pride, safety, happiness that they're with me and we're going home. Then we reach it. An elaborate structure in the shape of a rose with its petals spread. A circle surrounded by by crisscrossing arch shapes. Only the very top pokes above the surface and the rest extends far below the ice, but still its beauty almost stops my heart a glimmering city in the middle of the night, many times larger than Siesfant, that no human eyes have ever seen. 
I must have blacked out because I wake up and find that the crocodile has swept me up in her tentacles and is using her front legs to brace me while also climbing the, rock, the sheer rock face that I fell down before. I'm still frozen to the bone, but she has wrapped some kind of thick blanket around me that feels like something between moss and fungus. The fabric feels warm and dry, wound around my face with just enough slack to let me breathe. One tentacle covers my nose um, and her cilia brush against my skin. I still can't see anything, but I feel our rise in, our, in my inner ear, and even with the crocodile's body shielding me, I can feel the bitter wind flow around me. She deposits me at the same spot where the two police officers pushed me over the edge into the night. I'm on the ground before I even realize she's laid me down, and I wriggle out of her covering, only to be blinded by the faint light for a moment. The cops are long gone. My rescuer is even bigger than the other crocodile that I saw being butchered when I was a child with a thick carapace and weathered skin on her legs and tentacles. There are two large indentations, one on either side of her head, which look like big, sad eyes, but aren't. Her round shell hunches as she shields herself from the sudden exposure to partial sunlight, which no crocodile can ever endure. Her pincer opens and closes as if she's saying goodbye. Before I can take a proper look or try to communicate again or do much of anything, really, the crocodile has turned around and is already disappearing back down the mountain into the night. So now I'm going to read a little bit from the end of the book, but don't worry, it's not a spoiler. It's not, no spoilers, I promise. But, I mean, minor spoilers maybe, but it's, it's uh, basically looking at that same scene that I just read you, but more from the point of view of the creature whose name is now Rose. Rose keeps reminding me of, of how we first met. She shows me how I looked that first time, out on the ice, wearing my second-hand trendy clothes, dying and, and terrified. She's shown me that memory before, but this time I can more easily identify with Rose's perspective. I'm Rose, and I see this human shivering from cold and terrified rage, and she does that animal thing of tensing to fight or, or run. But then, instead, she does something that no human has ever willingly done before. Tilt her head back, let my tendrils touch her bare flesh. I feel Rose's surprise, her euphoria, that sense that something perverted and maybe wonderful is happening here. I try to ask Rose the question that I've been, that's been bothering me ever since I came among her people, what do they believe in? I have to ask several times, and then she seems to get it, because she unfolds an ancient memory, the oldest that anyone has ever shared with me, or maybe not a memory, maybe a legend, or, or a little of both. I can tell its age by the smooth edges, the lack of sensory detail, and the easy flow of the events, the same way that humans can spot that a story has been told and retold by a long chain of people, because it makes too much sense. Long ago, before the first civilization rose up on this planet, everyone lived in scattered burrows all over the night, with no more than maybe a hundred people per burrow. They wove their tendrils together when anyone wanted to share information about what she had seen or what she had done. Or somebody might share, somebody might come up with a simple idea that she shared with everyone else, like a way to harvest more roots and grubs to feed into the web where their children were developing. Or 
how to strengthen their barriers against ice slides and avalanches. And that's when their greatest love story took place. These two people who had grown up in different boroughs. Do you need a seat? I see that you've got a cane. I'm sorry. Are you sure? Okay. Sorry, I don't mean to be rude. Okay. These two people who had grown up in different boroughs came together after some brutal ice storms drove them away from their homes. The two refugees became inseparable and their tendrils were intertwined whenever they weren't working or eating. They slept with their pincers wrapped around each other in their own mossy nook where the cool air ran over their carapaces. Their dreams flowed back and forth and between them and their memories of fleeing their homes um, blended together until they almost shared the same past. Everyone else recoiled because this couldn't possibly be healthy for them. Plus, they were exclu excluding the rest of the community, which was hurtful. People tried to pry the two of them apart physically or sent one, of the, one or the other of them off on long errands outside the burrow. At last, the, one of the oldest and most patient of the borough's residents decided to talk to both of them together and find out exactly what perversion they had been drawn into. And then there were three of them, entangled, inextricable. People began talking about evicting all three of them from the borough. What had seduced the three of them into this unnatural closeness? a set of designs for a water wheel, using the nearby underground river to operate a crude mill that would help them to separate out the poisonous part of some of the mushrooms that grew in the caves. This was such a complex idea that they, one person couldn't invent it alone and then share it with everyone else. The concept needed to be shaped among two or more people working together. They couldn't even share it with the others until they had the concept. And these lovers had discovered a powerful thrill, a joy that went all the way down to their stomachs um, in weaving a big idea together. Like some wild rapture, the sensation of helping others to imagine something bigger than yourselves. Somehow, this weird love story is the foundation of this community's politics or, or maybe religion. Rose lingers on the oddest parts, like uh, when the when they finally reveal their invention to the rest of the community, or the tenderness when the couple becomes a trio. I sense the echoes from all the countless other times that people have passed this legend around, and the lesson that comes with it. To join with others in shaping a future is the holiest act. This is hard work, and it never stops being hard, but this collective, Dreaming slash designing is the only way that we get to keep surviving. And this practice defines us as a community. Even the other communities that live apart from the midnight city, scattered all over the night in smaller cities or towns, they all share this same origin story. Cool. So can I read a little more? Are you guys, are you, are you all good? Okay, cool. So I'm gonna read something a little bit different. Um, I'm gonna read about crossing the sea of murder. Um, so, and you know, I, I kind of didn't realize until the other day that there's a lot of tentacles in this book. Like, 
basically it didn't really hit me until like and uh, Washington the Washington Post did like a Valentine's Day roundup of like for Valentine's Day here's some books about tentacles and love and they included this book and I was like oh yeah there are there are some tentacles in this book um, so this is a different tentacle this is people they're trying to cross the sea of murder where it's frozen over and it doesn't go well for them oh wait At first, they thought some seismic event had torn through the ice, or maybe some submerged mine left over from one of those ancient wars, a final revenge from some long-dead sailor. They bickered and debated, even as the road rose up vertical in front of them, sweated, spat, pleaded, prayed, boasted, grandstanded. The gravisist treads pawed at the unsteady fragments of tundra, groping in vain for some purchase, but then the mist cleared, and Alyssa spotted the cause of the eruption. One giant tentacle, covered with iridescent feathers and tipped with a leaf-shaped barb the size of an entire tenement building, had burst upward from the frozen ocean, filling the space like a brand new monument. One of the giant squids that lurked at the bottom of the sea of murder had detected food on the surface and decided to go hunting. Alyssa unsnapped her harness while all the other people in the vehicle wasted time bemoaning their fate, and she pushed through the passenger compartment until she reached the cockpit. She leaned over an older man named Winston who sat in the pilot's seat and unfastened his safety harness for him. You better let me drive, she said. Winston hesitated, and she added, Do you want to live, or do you want to feel good about yourself in your final moments? One of us here knows the sea of murder and it's not you. Winston slid out of his chair, and Alyssa climbed in, securing herself inside. Mouth came and stood next to her, mostly to watch what promised to be an excellent show. The fleshy protrusion rose 30 meters over their heads, its tip swaying as if it was searching for prey. Then it curled, whip fast, and ensnared two vehicles in a sudden fluid motion, dragging them back through its hole in the ice. Bloody hell, Winston breathed. Those poor people. Eh, pretty quick death. Better than most. <laughs> Alyssa kept her eyes fixed on the topographic scans, looking for tiny fluctuations or perturbations in the ice while easing the ATV forward at a tantalizing speed. They crawled ahead until they reached one of the darkest blue spots, and then Alyssa spun them around almost 90 degrees and sped up so the terrain streaked past for a moment. Then she pulled back on the throttle again, and they were back to baby steps. Shouldn't we be making a break for it while that monster is distracted? Jimmy, another senior member of the crew, muscled his way forward. He was that enormous man with the giant spiral scar across his hairless scalp, which he claimed had come from a fight that he had won where someone had put his head in a melon peeling machine. Why are we playing games instead of just getting the heck out of here? The other five vehicles were following Jimmy's idea, barreling at top speed away from the jagged patch of exposed ocean toward the waiting command vehicle, but the ice ripped open in the space between the rumbler and two of the troop transports, propelling massive chunks at their armored sides. And then the tip of the squid's tentacle pulled one of the transports down into the ocean, twirling with the measured elegance of a coffee server at the Illyrian parlor. And then another vehicle was gone. That's why, Alyssa said. Any other questions? 
Jimmy's brow furrowed so that the sharp end of his scar pointed at one glowering eye while Alyssa executed a three-point turn and then coasted the vehicle across a thin sheet of permafrost that seemed to tremble as they passed over it. The giant squid extended its reach further over the ice, its feathers curving outward as they searched for other caches of protein. The other three lorries had stopped moving, probably hoping that the squid would ignore them if they made no vibrations, but they rested on undulating promontories of ice. Alyssa was humming something that Mouth couldn't make out at first, and then she twigged. It was that song about the decapitating sisters, the two women who could snick a man's head off before his thoughts even reached his gun hand, the pair of them, a coordinated neck-severing machine of such beauty that people risked death to watch them work. Alyssa spun the lorry on its axis and scooted away from the tentacle as she broke into the chorus. And oh, the heads, the heads, the heads, the rolling heads as they danced. Alyssa had already gotten them past the two fast-expanding holes that the squid had made, and they were gliding forward with their engines stilled. Darn, Winston breathed. We're going to make it after all. And that's when the fleshy tip of the squid's long arm landed right in front of their vehicle, blocking their path, blotting out the rest of the world even. The frond-shaped growth wriggled, almost playfully, and its huge feathers undulated in the wind. You had to say that. Alyssa grunted at Winston as she squeezed their brake leather lever as gentle as soothing a baby. And I'm just going to close with the, my favorite line of dialogue from the book, which is on the next page, which is, gravestones all over the world have should have listened to Alyssa the first time written on them. <laughs> cool. So questions, anybody, anything? I don't know. AMA. Uh, uh, <laughs> or not, we could do a single, oh, hi. hi. Christine, hi. What came first, the title of the last planet, the It was definitely the title of the planet came first, and actually it was one of the more frustrating processes I've had because normally I start with the characters and I just kind of figure out a world around them. Like that's how All the Birds in the Sky started. That's how the young adult book I'm working on now started. Uh, normally I just, you know, kind of sketch in the, the world as I need it, kind of. Like they keep walking and I have to keep drawing sidewalk <laughs> out of their feet, kind of. But in this case, I got obsessed with Tidally Lock Planets because they're freaking amazing. So a Tidally Lock Planet, by the way, is a planet where there's one side that always faces the sun and one side that is always in the darkness. And so there's like permanent day side, permanent night side. The day and night are places rather than times. And that was actually something we were really careful about this in this book. We, the copy editor went through and made sure that there's no, we never use the word minute, second, second hour, tomorrow, yesterday, you know, the other day. None of that stuff is in the book because uh, I didn't want any units of time that were earth units. Um, but anyway, so I was obsessed with tidally like planets and like, you know, all the birds in the sky has this thing of like magic and science, which are the, these two opposites. And so I love people who are caught between day and night, which are like a different kind of opposites. And the idea that you could walk in the direction of the night or walk in the direction of the day was something I just got really obsessed with. And it's this harsh environment where people really have to kind of you know, work really hard to survive and it's tough and society can be really oppressive depending on where you live. And so I spent like 
two years just sketching the world and kind of writing bits and pieces of things. And the characters were just not coming. And it was really only when I quit my day job um, in like May 2016, after like two years, two plus years of just sketching stuff out that I was able to actually come up with characters who I thought, you know, who I was excited to write. And then the book kind of came, but it took like a long, long, long time to get the characters to go in the world. Like it was really backwards from my usual process. And somebody else had their hand up. Hi. Uh, I mean, it was a bunch of things. It was the fact that I was kind of hitting a wall with this book and I felt like it was really complicated. The world was like really complicated. I didn't really understand what the story was. I had a bunch of set pieces that I really liked, but I didn't have a story yet that I understood fully and I was like I feel like it needs my undivided attention and then also um you know all the birds in the sky had come out um four or five months earlier and it was doing pretty well and I felt like you know I might be able to make this work as like our career and then there was also just I had been working at io9 I'd been blogging for eight and a half years at that point and I kind of felt like I was maybe reaching the end of my ability to do that. And like the internet was changing, blog, bless you, blogging was changing, everything was kind of changing up. And it was just no longer the thing that I had been doing for a long time. And so I kind of wanted a break anyway. And I was like, I'm just gonna see how this goes. And then luckily I sold this young adult trilogy that I'm writing now. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm still, it's like the same thing I said before. I'm like sketching the sidewalk under myself as I'm walking, like that's my career right now, kind of. Hi. Yes. Um, how did you choose the places that would populate the of the Oh, that's a really interesting question. Thank you. So, okay. So one of the things that I did that was like way, probably way too detailed was I sketched out a whole future history leading up to this book because I didn't want the thing where like, it's like a tabula rasa, like people just arrive on this other planet and it's like, oh yeah, we've left behind everything from earth. We don't have any, like our history is just what happened since we arrived on the planet. And I didn't think that was realistic. And I wanted to have a sense of like the weight of history, especially with part of what's going on in this book. Sorry, this is a digression, but part of what's going on in this book is that because the sun doesn't ever rise or set, the passage of time is really hard to kind of reckon unless you like have some external way of keeping track of it. I mean, biological processes like, you know, aging and, and stuff, childbirth, you know, pregnancy, that, those things still happen in roughly the same time span. But the day-to-day -day, like thing of like the sun coming up and going down isn't happening. And so the passage of time is kind of oblique. And part of what I was interested in is how do people think of the past when they, the, you know, yesterday, there's no yesterday kind of. Um, so that was something I was obsessed about a lot, and I wanted a sense of the weight of history. I wanted ethnicities that felt real. So I came up with this idea that basically in the 23rd, 24th century, most of the Earth's surface is uninhabitable, but we live in these like kind of domed maybe environment, you know, these sealed cities. And I picked cities that were not major cities of like right now, for the most part. And I, I picked cities that were mostly far from the coasts because I figured the coastal areas were not going to be very nice at in in this point. And so I just kind of, and I talked to some of my friends from all over the place, and like, I picked places that seemed like interesting, like Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. I've always wanted to go there. And so I was like, what would Ulaanbaatar be like in, you know, 
hundreds of years from now? And what would people in the 33rd century whose ancestors came from Ulaanbaatar, what would they think about it? And so like the other ones were like Nagpur in India, which is actually a huge city, but it's not one of the cities that people in America talk about very much. And Merida in Mexico and Calgary, the only place there's no, none of the United States exists anymore, but there's Calgary. And I had this whole complicated thing. I had this thing where like basically Calgary kind of got overrun with like refugees from the U.S. and it kind of turned into a, like a little bit of a, you know, it, we kind of stunk the place up the way we tend to. And so it was kind of like Calgary was like the worst of the cities. Um, and like, I forget, I don't know. So I came up with these seven cities and then came up with a whole history of like how they joined together to build this ship to send people to this other planet, how it all went horribly wrong on the ship and how it's gone even more horribly wrong since they got here. And um, I don't know, it was, I felt like I needed that level of detail in order to it, for it to feel believable to me, kind of, if that makes any sense. Yeah, thank you. Cool. Hi, Red Hat. And then, and then you. Oh, the, I mean the creatures, because like we have the print, which is like one of the cities. So everybody who, I, I don't know if you heard this at the start, but anybody who buys the book gets a print and I'll sign the prints too. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so no, not to my knowledge. Like, I mean, I did sketches. I doodled. I did sketches of like the, the crocodile slash gelat um, when I was writing it because I needed to visualize them. But I don't know if anybody else has yet. I would love that if somebody did. I mean, God, that would be amazing. Getting like fan art or fan anything is like kind of just a dream. Um, and Scarf, hi. Is that CB? Yeah. Hi. Uh, what is, can you talk a little bit about your writing It's definitely changed. So the question was about my writing process. And part of my writing process is that I just, I take a really long walk every day and go to a cafe somewhere and just kind of sequester myself, hopefully a cafe where I don't know anybody and like just write and like, Often while I'm walking to the cafe, I'll be kind of talking to myself about the story and where it's going, and people probably think I'm oh, whatever anyway, uh, whatever they think anyway. Um, but you know, I, one one way that it's changed actually is that the, during that two-year period that I talked about, where I was like sketching the world and didn't really have characters that I thought were working, I was doing it longhand in journals, and that's how I I wrote all the birds in the sky longhand in 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 blank and like notebooks, and I wrote some previous novels that way, longhand. And after this, and after this process was so frustrating, <laughs> I kind of gave up on writing longhand because I was like, I like the fact that it's kind of stream of consciousness and you're just kind of making stuff up and you don't go back and edit. And there's, you know, if you're writing in like a moleskin notebook, there's no like icon that pops up at the top right hand of part of the page that says, you've got an email. Someone tweeted about you. Something terrible is happening somewhere in the world. You know, it's just your blank page and your pen and you can just kind of sit with it. But I felt like for this book, the kind of like stream of consciousness, just writing stuff down that came to me thing was not kind of working in the end. It was, it was interesting. I had a lot of cool sketches and I did come up with a lot of stuff. But so I've kind of stopped doing that, but I might go back to it at some point. The most important thing for me is just to kind of like day to day when I'm, especially when I'm writing a first draft, but even in revision, the most important thing to me is to keep surprising myself, like coming up with stuff that I was like, oh, I didn't think that was gonna, okay, okay, we're gonna go with that. Uh, and like stuff that kind of comes out of left field a little bit, 
Like, cause if I'm not surprised then I don't think I can surprise the reader in an authentic way, like surprises that I'm like, I'm going to surprise you are often are just like, I'm, you can see me putting little pieces in place and like dancing around behind the curtain or whatever. So it's, if I can surprise myself and not have it feel like it doesn't make sense, then I'm super excited. Cool. Hi. Yeah, um, so the question was about short fiction versus novels. And I started out writing nothing but short fiction. And uh, I loved writing short stories. And like short stories are a great way to practice like writing a beginning and an end. Like you just have a lot of beginnings and a lot of endings. And like I tried that thing where I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write a short story a week. And it, I don't think I ever did, but I tried really hard to get that level of, of prolificness, prolificity, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but um, I love short stories because it's basically you, you can just get in and kind of tell like a moment where something changes and then get out. And um, with novels, you kind of have to like, there's a lot more middle. There's a lot more middle with novels than there is with short stories. And you have to kind of build and build and not have it feel just bloated and aimless. And like, you know, there's maybe more twists with novels too. Um, I, I love like just being able to say as much as I can in the shortest possible version of the story, I feel like that's always kind of more interesting in a way than having like unlimited space. Like, and with novels, you still don't have unlimited space because once you hit 100,000 words, people start to get nervous kind of about like how they're gonna print it or whatever, but um, <laughs> I don't know. Like any, the longer it gets, the harder it is to, to sell, I think. But yeah, I mean, I, I love writing short stories. I, I'm really excited about novellas right now. I feel like everybody is like, a lot of the most exciting stuff being published right now is novellas like Binti and the Murderbot Diaries and just a ton of stuff. J.Y. Yang's novellas, the Tensor 8 series. There's so much great novellas coming out right now. And like I was in New York last week and basically every other conversation with people I, in publishing and everybody else was like, are you going to write more novellas? Are you going to write some novellas? Why don't you write some novellas? Like, so I feel like maybe somebody's trying to tell me that I should write some novellas. I don't know. But I feel like those are like the sweet spot because you write like 30,000, 40,000 words and you can, you can kind of go really deep with the characters, but it's still, it's more self-contained, I think. And I've experimented with taking some of my old unpublished novels and turning them into novellas by just cutting out some of the excess crap. And I feel like when you start cutting stuff out, they just get better because you, you don't have to like, yeah, you don't have to take as much time with stuff and fewer subplots maybe. Okay. Hi, stripey sweater. Yeah, um, thank you. So the question is, will I ever come back to this world in like another novel or something? I've thought about it. Um, this is definitely a standalone. It's definitely not intended to be like the first book of a series or whatever. But, you know, I would love to come back at some point and um, maybe, you know, pick up like 50 years later, like a couple generations later and see where things are. Because, you know, I did like a little bit of a cheeky thing. The book starts with a translator's note. And if you read the translator's note carefully, this book has been translated into some alien languages into English, basically. Um, because I'm always like, how did we, you know, I, I, I obsess about stuff like that. And so if you read the translator's note, it's, it comes, it was written a lot longer, a lot later, I can use words, it was written a lot later than the rest of the book. And it kind of tells you what happens after the book ends, like if you really want to know. 
And what, kind of what happens is, I mean, you'll see, but if you read the translation, if you get to the end of the book and you're like, so where's that going? Just read the translator's note again and it kind of tells you where, where things are going. And there is maybe a novel about that. It wouldn't be the same characters, but maybe like 50 years later, like what's, what's happening now with, the, with that, that kind of change. Cool. Hi. Yeah, uh, I had a friend who, uh, the question was about research and talked to people. I have a friend who lived at McMurdo Station in Antarctica, and I talked to her a bunch about what that was like living there and like with just like the endless snowy waste and everything and the, you know, just the super bright sky and all of that. Um, I also did, before the, before the Helsinki Worldcon, I went to Reykjavik and kind of hung out there and you know, traveled around and saw the geysers and talked to people about like, and it was, it was like August. So it was not quite like, you know, it wasn't quite the 24 hour day, but it was close. And like, um, just talking to people about what that was like. So that was kind of the extent of that. But I also read a bunch of stuff, um, about, you know, those kind of extreme climates. Cool. Thanks. Hi, in the very back. How are we doing for time, by the way? Okay, cool. In the back. Hi. Oh, man. So the question was, like, when I finally quit my day job and figured out the characters um, in the book and, like, what their story was, was there any particular thing that I read or did that ignited it? I don't think there was a specific thing. I mean, honestly, when you, like, especially the characters of Sophie and Bianca, who are, like, the kind of two of the four main characters in the book, um, a lot of that comes from reading Doris Lessing. Like, I feel like everything I write is like super heavily influenced by Doris Lessing, who's, um, people don't read in her enough anymore. And one of the things that she does really well is super young, idealistic characters who have really kind of codependent relationships and make horrible decisions for like noble reasons. And like her Martha Quest novels do that, but also she wrote a book in the mid eighties called, this is the best title. It's called The Good Terrorist. And it's about this group of young people who are living in a kind of group house in London somewhere I guess and they decide they're going to join the IRA and blow some shit up and it's like the most unsympathetic premise you could possibly have and she makes them incredibly like sympathetic and believable and you 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 don't root for them to successfully blow things up but you root for them to be okay and to realize what idiots they're being and you know it doesn't go that well for them because they're really not good at being terrorists they're good terrorists but they're not good at it if that makes any sense um, but that kind of, I mean, she does that thing super well. And I feel like that's really like ingrained in my work. I love, I love that thing that she does. I mean, there's a lot that she does. That's amazing. Cool. Anyone else? Hi. Yeah. Um, so the question is, when I was stalled out on the world and like trying to figure out the characters in the world, what were the, what were the questions I asked myself? You know, I mean, okay, so I had this thing. I knew that, that the passage I read to you all where like Sophie, the main character, is 
pushed into the night and meets a crocodile um, and learns to communicate instead of being killed. That was something I always knew was going to be in there in some way or another. And like, you know, in some versions of the book, it had happened a few years earlier and we just kind of like, oh, she learned how to communicate with these creatures and we're, she's already doing it. And that, that wasn't satisfying to me. I had to see her make that connection and figure that out in real time in the book. But so I knew that that was a thing that was going to happen. And I knew that, you know, this was going to, and that there was going to be a lot of like really crunchy politics about the societies, the human societies, and how they're trying to organize themselves to survive on this planet. And I think that, you know, part of what I was trying to figure out is why does she get sent into the night? Um, you know, was she, like in one version, she was going with a hunting group and all the hunters got killed, but she survived because she learned to communicate with this creature that they were trying to hunt. But I didn't really sympathize with her if she was going on a hunting trip to go and kill this creature who we then realize is actually intelligent and awesome. That makes me kind of not like her at that point. So she's not a hunter. She's not going along on the hunting trip. I was trying to figure out what, what sends her into the night. And so that kind of backward, I backed into this thing where she's got this friend who makes some really dumb choices and she kind of, spoiler alert, but it's the first chapter basically, she kind of takes the blame for her friend's dumb choices and that's what leads to her being shoved into the night. And that kind of, and then, you know, once I started pulling at the thread of this friendship and these two characters and, you know, this kind of codependent relationship that they have, that kind of led me to the ending that I have still have as the ending in the book. And so, but it kind of started with that idea and like, there was a character who did the thing that I read to you all about, but it wasn't that character. And I had to know who she was and why she was there and what 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 got her there, kind of. Does that help? Does that make sense? Cool. Yay. Yay. I'm making sense. Cool. Um, maybe like one or two more? I don't know. One more? One or two more? Maybe a couple more? I don't know. Hi. Stripey, other stripey sweater. Other stripey sweater. Um, Oh my God. I mean, there's so many writers I'm excited about right now. I just read, um, I got to read an early copy of The Deep by River Solomon, and they're an amazing author. And this is a book that's like a novella that's based on a song by Clipping, David Diggs's uh, group. And it's taking this song, this hip hop song that was nominated for the Hugo and kind of expanding it into a whole world. And it's so awesome. And it's like, I don't think this is a spoiler. It's about a world where people who were pushed overboard from slave ships turned amphibious or turned into amphibious creatures and their descendants are now living in the bottom of the ocean. And it's so amazing. I love it so much. And I mean, there's so many authors. I can't even, like my brain is kind of fried right now. I'm reading the new, I'm reading Sarah Pinsker's novel that comes out in September and that's amazing. She's incredible. I feel like if you look at the award, like the Hugo and Nebula nominee lists of the last three or four years, it looks really different from previous years. Um, and, you know, it's a bunch of new names. It's much more diverse. It's much more, it's work that just feels a lot fresher and more exciting to me in a lot of ways. It's stuff that hasn't, I've never seen before in science fiction and fantasy. And I feel like right now, like my, my editor, Patrick Nielsen Hayden said on Twitter today about the Nebula shortlist today, this right now is the golden age of science fiction. 
we're living in it. And I think that is partly because there's more people of color writing science fiction and fantasy. There's more, you know, trans and queer and non-binary people writing science fiction and fantasy. There's more talk about things like disability that kind of had been skated over before. There's just a lot that we're finally kind of talking about that just enriches and expands, like the frame has been expanded. And I think that, you know, it's just a really exciting time. Like I read stuff and I feel like, um, you know, I feel like I just get ideas and inspiration from reading all the stuff that's being published right now. And I feel like there's a ton of us who are in conversation with each other a little bit. And it's just, it's a really, it's just such a fantastic time to be, to be reading. And pretty much everything that's been nominated for those awards in the last like few years has been just fantastic. Cool. Uh, last question, maybe? Well, I, actually, since you did um, mention sort of like this, this change of voice and tone yeah. in, in sci-fi writing, um, I was curious to know, how do you think that came about? I mean, how do you, why do you think that came about? I think it came about because of, I think, the, so the question is, why was there this change in, you know, who's writing science fiction and how they're writing it? I think it came about because of a lot of activism and a lot of like people standing up and being like, hey, you know, this, is, this isn't reflecting the real world. It's not, you know, it's building a future that's not including most of the human race and it's not reflecting the whole world we live in. And I think that, you know, I mean, there were things like um, several years ago, there was a study that somebody did online of like basically everything that was nominated for, I guess, I forget if it was the Hugos or the Nebulas, and it was like like 90% white dudes, like the whole time, and had been nominated since like the 50s. And people were like, yeah, you know, that's awesome, but there's other people writing stuff, and there's a lot of great stuff being written. And I think that people just, there was... A, a lot of like activism, a lot of like really hard conversations about inclusion and about cultural appropriation, which is kind of the flip side of that because it's about who gets to tell the stories of these people who are marginalized, whether marginalized people get to tell our own stories or whether people tell our stories for us. And I think that that's been a, like the last 10 years, it's been, there have been some really hard conversations about that. And it's led to people realizing that if we want these stories to happen, we need to make an effort to try to bring people in who can write them and who can write them from an authentic place. And that's been, you know, I think it's been really good. And there's been a bunch of like, just people working really hard, like people, um, and there's been that book, Writing the Other, uh, which is now a series of seminars that if you ever want to learn more about writing diverse characters and writing marginalized characters, writing the other seminars by like Nisi Shaw and Tempest, K. Tempest Bradford are amazing and they will, they will teach you everything you need to know. And so, you know, I think authors like, you know, white, you know, white male authors, but everybody else from like the dominant culture has been learning a lot more about like writing inclusive fiction as well. And I think there's just been a lot more awareness of it. And, you know, it really, I've seen it happen in real time and it's been just, you know, like I said, there have been really difficult conversations, uh, but it's also just been really inspiring to see it, you know, to see the change, to see the result. Cool. That's, that's yeah. Cool. <laughs> Any other questions? No? Last one? Okay. Oh, wait, we had... Okay. You can ask me in the signing line. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm going to yeah, sign books. Wow. You can get a free poster. Um, cool. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. 
Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.